Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found the flame. All right. Well, welcome back to Beyond Therapy. Today, we're continuing our look at perinatal mental health concerns and challenges associated with pregnancy loss. I am super excited to be joined by perinatal mental health specialist, Casey Hodes. Casey is a licensed clinical mental health counselor and national certified counselor with a master's of education in counseling from Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina. She's received special training in perinatal mental health through PSI, Postpartum Support International, and is a proud supporter of the Secular Therapy Project. Although she's been working in mental health as a licensed therapist for over 16 years, it was her own experience with postpartum depression and anxiety that led her to focusing on the perinatal population. She knew that if she, a privileged white woman, had difficulty finding support and resources, then how are women of color getting their needs met? Once she had recovered, she jumped into educating herself through books, trainings, and earning the perinatal mental health certification. Welcome, Casey. Thanks, Candace. Happy to be here. Well, maybe just orient us a little bit to your practice. So who do you work with? What approaches are you into? Yeah, so um, for the past, I would say about Four or five years, um, I've been focused on uh, working and supporting new mothers. Um, and that has just turned into like my biggest passion, um, just talking with with moms who are having a just a hard time adjusting to motherhood um, and those who have been diagnosed with a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. Um, and with them, I use a lot. I use a lot of humor um, because I feel like with motherhood, like you got to laugh because it is real. The struggle is real. And I love just being upfront with women and like, you know, letting them, I think, I think using a sense of humor in therapy um, helps people loosen up a little bit because they're so nervous about, especially the, you know, the first couple sessions. Um, they're so nervous. And I, I love just kind of breaking the ice and saying, look, like, I know, you know, you're probably covered in spit up and poop right now. And, you know, it's fine. Like, let's just be honest about how hard this job is and how hard it is to make this transition. Um, and so I use a lot of, of that. And then as, as far as like actual like approaches, uh, I do use a lot of CBT. Um, and um, lately I've been learning and trying to get more training in mindfulness uh, because I think that is, um, I just think you can apply that to just about anything. Um, especially with new moms, because they're typically worrying about, you know, something that's going to happen, you know, the mm -hmm. worst case is, that might happen, or they're having regrets and guilt about something they didn't do or something they did in the past. And so mindfulness is really helpful for um, mothers to, you know, stay focused on like, just all you got to do is be present right now. Let's just notice what comes up for you. And I think, I think mindfulness can work great with CBT. I think, it's, I think they, those are great partners. Mm hmm. Well, I love that you lay out what I, I certainly connect with as being, you know, kind of the one of the core difficulties is being present. Right. Because it, it's like, at least for me and for a lot of the clients I work with, motherhood just took what could go wrong to just a whole other level. And it took what I probably did wrong 
also to a whole other level. <laughs> right, right. And there can be a lot of trauma in uh, childbirth and um, just, you know, uh, breastfeeding and feeling that, that you don't even recognize your body anymore and you don't know who you are anymore. And, um, so I think, I think, you know, mindfulness really pairs well, um, in a, you know, a trauma informed, um, mindfulness pairs well with, with this work. As you mentioned, some of the things that now, just now that, new moms have to adjust to. I'm curious, like, what are some of the themes in terms of what new moms? Well, um, it's really, I think, I think this is getting better, but it's still really hard um, for, for women to ask for support. And, uh, and then, and even if they're ready to accept support, they may have difficulty just finding that because we are so, um, we're so disconnected. And, and even pre-pandemic, um, so many people are spread out and living far away from family um, and friends and um, or they've recently moved for a job or something like that. And and, it, you know, as as a as grownups, it's really hard to make friends and really find people that you connect with. Um, and I I would encourage like if I could just get a hold of like everybody who's pregnant, <laughs> I would say, like, let's find you some support now. Let's get that lined up for you because you are going to need it. And, it, you know, it doesn't matter if you're introverted, extroverted, somewhere in between, highly sensitive. Like we all need people. We need different amounts of people and in contact with people. But um, even the most introverted and I mean, I am I am a strong eye and, you know, and I, you know, we, we need people, too. And, and you just and it's not always it's not always just somebody to um, talk about the struggle with. You know, it's just somebody who gets it and somebody you can just sit with and feel comfortable and be yourself with. And I think that is one of the pieces that's missing for new moms because they are somebody different now. You know, motherhood changes you um, forever. And yeah, and so you may not really find that, you know, the, the, uh, the friendships that are that were present in your life um, feel the same um, now that you're a mom. And so 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 many things change. And that's why I think that, you know, parenting support groups, um, new new mom support groups are, are so helpful for this time period. It's interesting that you mentioned how friendships can change, because just the other day I was thinking about how um I was one of the last people in my friend group to have kids. And so when I reflect on the type of friend that I was to my pregnant and postpartum friends, I cringe because I just had like no clue what they were going through. Um, and it, then I remember how alienating it was for me to interact with people who didn't have kids because I felt like they had no idea what I was going through. So that feels so salient to acknowledge that even if you do have supports, what you need might and very well will change. Right, right. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I need to send some like, I'm, I'm sorry cards to the people that had kids before me because I was like, I was a shitty friend to you. Sorry. You were not a shitty friend. You just no, didn't I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Candace, I'll let you have your feelings. <laughs> Okay. Well, as we mentioned um, in the intro, you had you have a very personal connection to this work of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. 
Um, so I wonder if you could share a little bit about what that journey was, is like, how did you, how did you get here? Oh my goodness. I, we don't have enough time for that, but like, I, but I'll, I'll try to hit the high points, um, or the low points actually. <laughs> um, yeah, I, so, so I have a son who is 10. So this is, this has been a long, I, I'm still postpartum, right? <laughs> um, no, not really. Um, but 10, yeah, 10 years ago, um, I, I gave birth to my son and I thought I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't think it was going to be easy. You know, I had no like, uh, preconceived notions about like, this is going to be the perfect motherhood. I, I knew that it was going to be hard. I just didn't know how hard and in what ways it was going to be hard. Um, and right off the bat, you know, uh, childbirth itself was a long, a, a very long labor. And, um, and then, and then breast, breastfeeding didn't go as planned. And I thought just having all the tools, like the gear, I had the breast pump. I took the class. I took the childbirth class. I was lined up with a pediatrician. I had my, I trusted my OB. Like I was like, I was, I had all the boxes checked. Um, but I, I had no clue. No one had warned me about um, postpartum depression and anxiety. You know, I, I don't remember that. Like, of course, like maybe somebody mentioned it, but I, I feel like I, I, I just, it, it really hit me um, almost right away. And for a lot of women, it doesn't really show up until it can show up after, you know, it can even show up at six months um, or up to a year after childbirth. But for me, right away, I felt like, what have I done? Um, and right away, the sleep deprivation was there um, because my son had trouble um he was jaundice. And so he, we had to go to the pediatrician like every day in that first two weeks for him to be weighed and for us to, you know, resolve the lactation problems and all of that. It was just grueling. I just thought, I, I remember calling a friend who was, was going through fertility treatments at the time. And I was like, save your money. Don't do this to your life. Yeah. Don't blow up your life don't blow up your life. Just, just take that money and go on vacation. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I was, I was a wreck and, um, and it, I was very, I felt very isolated. And because I'm a therapist, I thought I, I should know what to do about this, this, you know, I, I know all the things I know how to take care of myself. I know the importance of mental health and self-care and, um, and I, so there was, there was shame, I think, um, about feeling this way, that everybody knew I was pregnant. Everybody was so happy for me and I'm supposed to be happy now. Right. And it's just, I just wasn't there. I love my baby. Um, but I, I felt disconnected to the baby and to everybody around me and to myself, you know, it's like, who, who are you now? And I think that's a big, that's a big part of just, you know, the typical adjustment to motherhood is that change in your identity. Um, yeah, so I, I had, and I did have a, a great therapist, um, and I, you know, called, contacted her just crying my eyes out. Um, and back then there was no perinatal mental health, um, certification. So, um, but I had been seeing her on and off for several years, you know, she was my go-to. Um, and so, and she was very helpful. Um, and so I think a lot of just those basic, you know, counseling principles certainly apply, um, when 
you know, when you are seeking help or, you know, a therapist. So I started seeing my therapist again and, and it was, it was very helpful. Um, and she met, and she asked like, what about, you know, have you thought about a support group? And so I reached, she didn't, she didn't know of any for new moms because at the time they're just, they're just weren't the resources that are available now. Um, and, and in some parts of the country, like there still aren't, um, those resources. Um, and so I, I, I contacted somebody through my OB's office and it was just so, it was so stressful just finding a group. And so I finally got a call, like I put in, put out some voicemails and was just calling everybody I knew. Um, and I finally got a call back from a nurse practitioner at one of the local, um, I believe it may have been UNC. I'm not, I'm not, I can't remember, but she told me about a group. She told me what time it was and what date and where to go. And I was like, oh, thank you. I show up. And I peek into the window and there are all of these husbands there, partners. And I didn't know it was bring your partner night. So I show up by myself already. I mean, really nervous because it's it's very nerve wracking to show up to a group. Okay. As a strong introvert, <laughs> new mother, I'm struggling. And I, you know, I was able to get myself together and drive to this group. And then I see all these men in the room and I'm like, oh, and then I look around and I see that the guest speaker is a therapist that I had worked with before. I, I turned around and I went to my car and I called my husband and I said, I can't go in. I There's somebody in there who knows me and I don't know what to do, but I can't go to this group. And I never found, an, I never found the group. Um, and so you know, so fast forward like several years, I was at a PSI training, Postpartum Support International, because I was just dipping my toe into this work. I was like, whoa, there's training for working with postpartum women. Let me, I want to do that. I want to do that. So I just started reading all the things and, um, and then, you know, I go to this training and there's, uh, you know, so many resources. Now, a parenting group was like, you know, sponsoring the event and there were doulas and there were just, just so many things. And so I'm so grateful that um, that we've come so far. Um, I, yeah, we still have a long way to go, um, but but it is so much better now. I feel like I can see you peeking in that window, having that realization that, you know, the the speaker that you, you know, came unprepared without your husband because you had no idea. Right. Just, I mean, man, that just hits me right in the, in the gut, you know, just the shame of it. Just like you mentioned. Yeah. Oh, and I just, I feel, I still feel that too myself. Like I still like, I can just picture me sitting in my car in that parking deck, you know, outside of that building and just, just, just losing my mind over like, and then, and then of course, beating myself up. Of course you can, you could have gone in there. Like who cares if you don't have your partner with you? Like you still could have gotten something out, you know? So, right. So new mom, <laughs> new mom guilt. Yep. I mean, I think that's so helpful, especially as we think about, you know, that counselors and therapists are, are part of the folks who are listening to this is just to stay connected to how hard it can be to be a client how vulnerable it is to be seeking help, how overwhelming it can be. So, okay, so you had a great therapist. Anything else that you feel like 
turn the tide for you? I think I, I honestly my privilege. You know, I have I have a great partner. Um, he knew, you know, something was not right. And he encouraged me to get help. He encouraged me to sleep when he was around and I could. Um, you know, we had we had we had some family. Um, n- none of our family lives close, but but um, my mother was in South Carolina. And so she could drive a few. You know, she could come up. And so so we just you know, we relied on our on the small um, support network that we had. Um, the, actually, and my son's pediatrician was so kind. Like he, um, I remember like one of those very first visits, um, during that first two weeks when my son was, he had been labeled, you know, failure to thrive. That's terrifying. Um, but he, you know, the first person that really looked at me and said, how are you, how are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? And that was, you know, I, that was just, I broke, you know, I broke down right there. Um, pediatrician, many times, um, the, the provider who is um, most frequently seeing new mothers, that you've taken the baby to the doctor, you know, every few weeks in those first months. Um, and so they really do have their eye on new moms. And I was so grateful that he saw me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just so powerful. Just nothing fancy about it. Just some solid eye contact and a genuine question. Yes. Yep. Empathy, compassion. Yep. What you're describing as your personal experience. I mean, I think it, I can just hear sort of the compassion and the empathy that you have for moms, you know, people who are struggling with postpartum, you know, how, just how connected you are to, even though it was 10 years ago, you know, how painful and isolating that experience was. Um, going to go totally a 180 toward the intellectual side of things. Cause that's something that I keep getting real hung up on. Is this like binary sort of thing? Um, so when we're thinking about how perinatal mood and anxiety disorders come about, on the one side, I'm wondering, is there something biological about pregnancy that predisposes birth givers to these conditions or doesn't have to be or, but I think in or um, does pregnancy amplify the already pre-existing social disparities that make anyone more vulnerable to mental illness? What do you think about that? Yes. Cool. <laughs> to all of it. <laughs> Both and. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, we, and we don't know. We don't know for sure. You know, there's probably genetic predispositions and uh, nature versus nurture and all the things. Um, and certainly, yes, yeah, certainly um, social disparities and uh, racism and patriarchy and all the things. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably a combination of, of all of that. Um, and I hope that, you know, that eventually we we can find uh, the, you know, that missing piece to like solve the puzzle. But uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's realistic, you know, to be able to pinpoint it, you know, that way. But, um, but yes, we do know all those things contribute to it. And it's like, how could, how could it not? Right. You know, these hormonal changes are going on and, um, and this, the shift in your whole entire life, everything changes. Suddenly you are not, 
um, you are not only responsible for you. You have a tiny human to keep alive, to nurture. Like you are it. Like it falls. And let's be honest, it falls on mom. You know, the emotional labor, uh, you know, being the default parent, you know, that that's the mother. And so, you know, if you are trying to breastfeed and it's not going well, who else is to blame? You blame yourself, you know, and because you hear you hear these messages that like everybody can do it. You if you just do it this way and there's this and there's this supplement to take and this class and the, and you're just really, you know, I, I don't I just think that that it, it changes everything and a lot of it you're not ready for. Um and even the stuff that you are ready for, you just don't know. There's so much uncertainty about how every step is gonna go. Um, developmental stages with your baby. Like there's constantly like whether your baby's a good sleeper or not, colicky or not, like you have no control over that. Um and so, but yet we we still blame ourselves. So um, yeah, so I think social, I think like our culture, um, the expectations of of women, um, what a mother is supposed to look like and what traits are acceptable for mothers to have and what traits aren't. You know, if you don't love motherhood, are you a bad mother? No, it's just it's it's a huge job and we don't have um, the village that early humans had. Yeah, we aren't supposed to be doing this alone. I'm curious if there are particular messages, because just when you were naming all of the beliefs that we can bring into this role, kind of depending on our own conditioning about like what it means to be a mom, what it means to be a good mom. What would you say are some of the more problematic messages or beliefs that some of your clients bring in about motherhood? Mm, great question. Um, well, yeah, like I think breastfeeding is way up there um, that um, that breastfeeding is the best uh, way to feed my baby and it's it's natural for it to just work and I should be able to do it because I want what's best if I want what's best for my baby and all the statistics say um breastfeeding is the most nutritious it will build their immune system it will make them smarter you know all the things um if i can't do that i'm right from jump i am letting my child down you know um and so we we need to we need to shift some of that yes breastfeeding is awesome and if you can do it and it feels okay for you <laughs> then by all means do it but fed is best so there is no shame in using formula. There's no shame in doing both. There's no shame in, you know, uh, however you want to feed your baby. That That's how to feed your baby. Um, so that, I think breastfeeding is a huge one that women beat, beat themselves up about. Um, other messages, you know, going, I mean, going back to work, when to go back to work. You know, like sometimes, sometimes mothers aren't they have no control over when they go back to work some women don't even have a you know uh, a maternity leave um much less like their partners having a paternity leave uh so you know those those things like our you know we don't we don't send the message to mothers that we value their that we don't 
val- we don't value them, right? Their their mental health, their physical health. Um, we tell them three months is enough for you to have a baby, um, learn the ropes, and um, find a childcare provider. Um, come up with some routine where, you know, you can get back to it. And we really push, we push women to get, we, so everybody, you know, has that three month kind of guideline, if that, and, um, and if you're not ready to go back, then, well, you know, you see they're tough or something's wrong with you. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, you know, and just the, the, um, how you feel about mothering. You know, if you don't really feel connected to this little screaming, you know, crying human, then what? You're not good enough. You don't love your baby. And you certainly can't be honest about those feelings with anybody because they might think that you don't need to have that baby and that you're not responsible or maybe you're really unwell and you shouldn't be a mother. You know, there's just uh, so many terrible messages. And so that that ends up um, making women feel like they can't be honest and they can't talk about these things. So I think that, you know, just uh, our culture's discomfort with discomfort. Women are supposed to be agreeable and they're supposed to want to have a baby. And then when they have that baby, they're supposed to just love it. (laughs) And it's just not that simple. As you're talking about that particular message, like we're supposed to love being a mother, it's supposed to be natural. Something that shows up for me with clients who are dealing with the fallout of those beliefs feeling very true is um, I tend to want to go like a, a, a feminist route that can sometimes get a little intellectual. So that's like, I'm curious if, if you have like a way that you find the balance, because my urge is to say, okay, well, why do you think you believe that? You know, like what, what forces do you think are at play that taught you that this is what it means to be a mother, that this is what it means to be? How do you bring the cultural conditioning, the patriarchal aspects into the room? I am, I am very straightforward about it. And I'm just honest because I think, I think we have to acknowledge that stuff. Um, it's real. And, um, and we, we have to go there because women may not be thinking along that track, depending on like how, how much, um, you know, feminist (laughs) education they've had, uh, or what political side they're on, you know, like uh, they may not have ever really considered that this is partially a societal problem. And so, um, I do. I, I think. I think we have to acknowledge all that in the in the therapy session, um, while also acknowledging. Well, I think that takes the pressure off of women. You know, when they start to, if you can just share that that perspective on it and make them think about, oh, yeah, like there are reasons why I expected motherhood to go this way, and it's not all because of like what's what's going on with me it's not just my point of view or my perception it's it's cultural and um and so you know i just think when it comes to mental health there's never just one 
um, contributing factor. You know, there's never just one, you know, there might be a precipitating event that brings you to therapy. Um, but there's, there's always layers and layers of, of, um, you know, adjustment and, um, cultural factors and biological factors. Um, and, and your brain, like, hello, like (laughs) your brain changes when you become a mother too. So, you know, every, when I say everything has changed, like I'm serious, everything has changed. And so I love to dig into all the things that are going on with clients, um, just so they, so they realize that like, oh, it's, it's not just me, you know, I'm not alone and I don't have a lot of control over this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the control piece I, I find is, can be a little bit of a tipping point for clients who are, I mean, understandably, like there's a time to get intellectual about it and there's a time to just be, I think, present and holding space and just letting it be how it is. But uh, when clients are kind of feeling it to go there, um, when I ask like, who's profiting from your pain, that tends to be a like, well, now wait a minute. It sounds like it's also really important for you to just educate clients about the whole picture. You know, like you said, there's just, there's not one precipitating factor. There's so many pieces at play when someone comes in with a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder. Uh, And you mentioned earlier that you really, you like CBT, you like mindfulness. Certainly most of the research in psychology uh, focuses significantly on CBT as kind of a go-to intervention. I can say that there are certainly strengths to CBT and I have some feelings about CBT. (laughs) So I'm curious if you've um, encountered weaknesses in using CBT with this particular population. Um, Well, I, yeah, I have feelings too about CBT. I love it. Um, It's it's very, you know, it's, it's very um, accessible, you know, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, and so that's good. Um, however, it really, I mean, we also know that the research says that the therapeutic alliance is what makes, you know, the difference in the outcome. So, you know, that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, but, um, but that, you know, so, so you have to connect with, with your client, um, on, on just a very, you know, personal kind of level. And really uh, let them know that they aren't alone and you see them. And um, and I think that sometimes with trauma, I feel like CBT misses the mark a little bit um, because, you know, if if a mother has experienced a trauma, um, it, the worst thing has happened already, you know. And so with CBT, a lot of the time we're saying like, you know, um, well, what is the worst that could happen? Like, let's break this down and be rational about it. Well, you know, if someone has experienced a trauma, um, their brain is not allowing them to be rational um, because that part of their brain has shut down on them uh, for, you know, when they were triggered and, and activated. So so I think that's one of the biggest things, you know, that CBT kind of misses. And also just that, um, that lack of support that... Um, that just is the case for most um, Western um, mothers, you know, like that, that lack of a village and a support system, you know, CBT doesn't really, um, 
doesn't really address that, you know. Um, okay, so I could go out and find support, but that is it's very difficult not having um, people around you um, that you trust to, you know, to lean on for support or to let them care for the baby. You know, like, I don't know, I think CBT kind of misses that, like some of the practical, like really everyday um, types of situations and issues that that mothers face. Given that support seems to be such a a critical aspect of recovering, integrating a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder. How do you support clients in that? I mean, I know like Postpartum International has so many virtual support groups, but what does it look like to uh, either encourage or resource a client when it comes to those social supports? Yeah, I yeah I do a lot of um, encouraging um, women to to seek out, especially and during COVID, like of course, like um, the support groups were had all shifted to online. Um, but yeah, I encourage women to to look in their you know local area in their local community. Um, what kinds of you know what kinds of resources are out there, um, and some places to look online um, for support. And you know what. If you are, you know, if you, if you can, you can hire (laughs) your support, (laughs) you know, like I know a lot of people are not in that situation, but, um, but support can look like hiring a postpartum doula or, um, you know, hiring a housekeeper or hiring a nanny or, you know, sending your child to, you know, to a daycare. Cause that's another one, right? Like everybody's terrified of the daycare, um, the daycare search, the all the what goes on with my baby when I'm not around, you know, all there's just so many like risks, you know, when you when you are a mother, you see risk everywhere. But like moms groups, um, and, and thinking about really like I like to I like to also use like strengths based approach. Um, and so if a woman really likes to go for walks, then you know a group like Stroller Strides, that's one of them. Like in in my in our local area. Um, and uh, I think it might be fit for mom, like me, the the organization that does those. But but though you know, something like that, where you can get out and move your body, and you're not just sitting in a circle with other moms and feeling vulnerable. Um, so you know, so there there might be a type of support that really um, is a good fit for you, but we won't know until we search for it. Had clients who were in that postpartum sort of space and, and struggling talk about is when they do seek out supports and the only thing they have in common with the people in the group is that they all made a human, but like just how hard it can be to find people who not only can connect with you around having a child, but that you would actually want to spend any kind of time with. Right. Yes. Like just because you are also a mother, like I'm, I expect to just click with you right away. Like, no. Yeah. That's a great point, Candace. Uh, building relationships takes time. So, you know, like, and so just because like you show up, I remember thinking like, I'm going to go to the playground with my baby and they're going to be moms and we're all just going to be best friends. And we're going to have our coffee and we're going to chit chat while the kids play. I never met a friend at the playground, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, or you try to like say hi, but like, I don't know. It just always felt so weird and forced um, to just walk up to somebody randomly and just be their friend. Like, 
I have a uterus. You have a uterus. Let's let's hang. Right. So, yeah, it takes time. Um, you know, I encourage, you know, I, I encourage a lot of patients with just like, this is a process. This is practice. We are practicing a lot of new things right now. Um, so even so getting that support and making friends like it's, you know, it's going to be it's going to take time. It's going to take as long as it takes. Um, and just thinking about like the things that you're interested in already. Um uh, the, you know, the, there are opportunities, like story time at the library, like something like that. Like, yeah, that's focused on your kid. So I don't know, you, you might find your bestie there, but like, maybe not. And just, and it's okay if you don't, you know, you can still get something out of that experience, um, because you are leaving your house and you are, you know, in an environment where there are other moms and there are just people and you get to see everybody else, you know, how they are parenting and and what stage their baby is at and it might be similar to you know like I just think even just being around people even when you don't even when you don't connect and you don't talk you're still um that social um atmosphere is still helpful it seems like maybe especially one of the sort of CBT oriented pieces like how one of the helpful connections to make for folks might be pretty much everything that you're not liking about motherhood or that isn't going the way you think it's supposed to go, it all paths lead to I'm a bad mom. Like if I can't make friends, if I'm not breastfeeding or not breastfeeding right, everything gets funneled into the same category. It's all evidence that I suck at this. Right, right. And I, th- I think social media is part of the problem. Um, but also there there are a lot of like really honest, you know, Instagram accounts and uh, videos of of mom life. Um, and so I think I, I think maybe we're shifting a little bit um, in the right direction. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, you know, social media, it's a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Um but I think I think it can be really validating. What we're talking about so far, I, I think, has some built-in assumptions, right? I mean, I think we're talking about healthy pregnancies, uncomplicated situations. If we turn to something that's a little more complicated, uh, which is pregnancy loss, um, I wonder if we can, if you can first just name, like, what sort of situations, I'll say, quote unquote, like, count as pregnancy loss. Hmm. Yes. Great question. Um, so a perinatal loss could be a miscarriage, which is defined as um, a loss of the pregnancy before 20 weeks. Um, uh, there are also, there's also TFMR, which is terminated for medical reasons. Um, and that's getting a lot of attention right now, thankfully, um, due to something that is not so great, which is um, the political environment and the um, the abortion bans and things like that, which also apply to medical, you know, terminations because of a baby's, um, you know, whatever, med- maybe medical reasons, um, genetic abnormalities, something that are, that just happens in utero. Um, so, so TFMR is a big one. Uh, stillbirth is um, when um, the when a baby dies before or during delivery, um, and then of course you have like a death of a newborn due to 
SIDS or, you know, uh, other types of things that develop after, after the baby's born. Um, and so, you know, one in four women will experience a perinatal loss. And depending on the, the type of loss, um, you know, the, the grieving process and the, um, the aftermath, it, it can, be, can be very different. Um, but th- these mothers are grieving. And that's very important to, to remember. I came across this concept in my doc program, and I, I got real into it for a little bit. And it's uh, disenfranchised grief. So it's any sort of grief that's not socially sanctioned. This could be like the death of a pet, the breakup of an affair, you know, job loss, uh, things that we don't really have a lot of ritual or specific expectations around. Um, So as you mentioned, you know, grief work being obviously a big part of working with someone who's experienced pregnancy loss. Like what does that grief work look like for you? I'm so glad you you mentioned that term disenfranchised grief um, because yeah that's exactly what um, it puts a, a a more like intellectual term to like what these women are feeling um, that nobody gets it that nobody sees them you know that um, especially with stillbirth um, and late term um, loss um, a lot of everybody knew I was pregnant and now there's no baby what do I you know what do I say how do I even like face people now? Um, and so, um, a lot of, a lot of the grief work is actually allowing them to feel whatever they're feeling because there's so much, you know, shame around it. And there could be, there can be trauma, you know, in in this, this, this kind of loss. And, uh, there's just so much, um, that's left for them to process and they don't have a safe space to do it in. Um, and so, you know, so a therapy session, a, a group, and again, PSI, PSI, um, they have, they have groups for um, bereaved couples, for bereaved mothers. Um, and there's a really good resource I'm also going to mention. Um, it's called Return to Zero Hope. It's rtzhope.org. Yeah, and they have they have groups specific to every different kind of loss, um, which is important because a woman who is grieving a stillbirth is not um, necessarily going to feel the same things as a woman who has suffered a miscarriage. Um, even though they're both grieving and there will be some similarities, um, they won't look exactly the same. So that's, so I think, I think it is important, you know, to look at the particular type of loss and what that entails. Um, And so, yeah, but you asked about like the grief work and it really is allowing, allowing the woman to tell the story, allowing her to say her baby's name. You know, even when someone suffers a miscarriage, they may have picked out a name already. They may have a whole uh, dream that they lost a dream of this, ch- what this baby meant to them and what this baby's life was going to look like um, and what their future as a family was going to look like. And so they've lost all of that. Um, and those are like the layers of, of losses and uh, shadow losses and, and all that. So, um, so just allowing them to, to tell their story and to speak honestly about that, um, about all these losses. And, um, I think that's really important to, it's, there's a lot of listening, um, you know, when, when you're working, um, with, um, with bereaved parents 
especially when I'm working with supervisees um, and in, in my own work with clients too, um, there can just be this sense of I should be doing more when it's grief work. And I think what you're naming it connects with my personal experience too, is that grief work I think is really about doing less because um, the work is being still, which is really hard. Yeah, so true. And, and right. And there, and I think a lot of psychoeducation, um, you know, goes on too with, with grieving um, clients because they are, maybe they've grown up in an environment that um, was kind of like sweep it under the rug or like buck up or, you know, that kind of, um, you know, wait, that kind of not really coping <laughs> strategy. Um, and so just to know that like, you know, you can take your time with this. It's going to take time. So, you know, we don't know <laughs> when you're going to feel better, but time will help. And what we do with the time will help. And here are some ways to, to get through it and to be kind to yourself and compassionate and, um, you know, encouraging. And, and so, yeah, encouraging rest and self-care is, is really important because these women, they are postpartum but without a baby. So they're still having hormonal changes. They may be lactating and they don't have a baby to feed. And so that is, that is heartbreaking. And, and so those are, those are the, you know, specific kind of like special uh, circumstances to consider when working with this population. Hmm. Are there other kind of maybe um, specific differences? Cause you were, I think you named some great ones like between someone who's had a miscarriage versus someone who's had a still, a stillborn child. Um, anything else that as you think about the different types of loss might be specific to that kind of loss? Yeah. You know, at a, at the point when a woman ha has, has uh, a late term loss or stillbirth, um, she, you know, they, she has probably received gifts already. <laughs> she has probably, she probably has the baby's room set up. She probably, um, she most probably has picked out a name and everyone knows when her due date was. Um, and she may have even had like baby showers and, and gender reveals and all those things. Um, so that's, you know, that is, that's really hard because when, you know, she's, she's now living in her house where there's supposed to be a baby. Um, and if she's mothering a, a, a living child, you know, that is also another aspect that that um that comes along with this that she's she may be trying to parent and push down all of her grief because she has this you know living child that needs her care and her attention um and so yeah so um so the kind of support that you know that women need depending on what kind of loss it is uh, may change a little bit yeah gosh i mean those those sort of details again it's just it strikes me how how important it really is to put yourself, and maybe this goes for any counseling, but to just really be in their world, you know, and to kind of take that risk of if I were in that house and I had to sit, walk by that nursery every day, you know, it's to just really be in that ache. Yeah. Yeah. Empathy is really important, isn't it? I'm thinking too about the the weird dichotomy that we have in at least the states, which is 
you're not supposed to let people know you're pregnant, quote unquote, supposed to let people know you're pregnant until the second trimester, presumably because that's when the risk for miscarriage goes down. So we're acknowledging that there's this risk, uh, but we're not talking about that one in four statistic, you know? And so there's still this perpetuated shame narrative of like, what did you do wrong if you lost this baby? As opposed to acknowledging that one out of four means it's a natural process. Tell me a little bit about how that has shown up with clients, like the willingness or reluctance to talk about being pregnant, maybe out of fear. Oh, yes. I see it all the time. It's like some kind of like law. And it's so misleading, uh, discourages women from like sharing too early. So then there's so there's a new rule to follow, right? Like, oh, well, um, I'm at risk, you know, during this time. But then uh, then once I get to the second trimester, I am like I am guaranteed healthy everything. And no. So so there is there is a risk to everything. And we have to be comfortable just knowing that, that there is no way to 100% guarantee a healthy pregnancy, baby, child, <laughs> life. I mean, you know, like there's there's risk to everything we do. But our brains like to um, have clear, <laughs> clear cut rules to follow. And is it this or that? And like, what do I need to do in order to, you know, survive, thrive, all the things? Um, and there's there that just doesn't exist. Um, and so, yeah, so I see that all the time um, with people. And then um, and then if something goes wrong after they pass that point in their pregnancy, they must have done something wrong. There's always some kind of guilt that um, that is part of the process. And it's important. Just, OK, well, we notice that guilt. And it doesn't mean it's valid. It doesn't mean you have anything to feel guilty about. Feelings are just feelings. So I think I think that's that's important to just you know help a mother move through that um, and see it as like okay, well I see you guilt. You're a normal part of the grieving process. Okay, thank you for your service. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, I love that approach. That sort of don't stuff it down. Don't make an enemy of it. Just like yeah, you're here. Part of my thinking around what could be problematic about that whole don't tell anyone in the first trimester piece is if something does go wrong and nobody knew you were pregnant, um, does that impact the way people are going to support you? Which ultimately I think that may give people more credit than they're due. Cause I think people struggle to support pregnancy loss regardless. Um, so that I'm curious about that. Like what have clients shared with you, what happens when they do seek support? What are some ways that that can go wrong? Oh, Candace, that could be a whole separate podcast. Um, <laughs> our okay, I'm talking about Western culture a lot here because that's that's who I am. That's my lived experience. We are terrible <laughs> at supporting people in pain. We don't like it. We don't like to be uncomfortable. Um, so we got it. We got to get over that. <laughs> you know, we are we're pushing, you know, grieving people to get over their stuff. Well, we got to get over being uncomfortable with pain, um, emotional pain. And um, so there is nothing that we can say to a grieving mother that is going to fix things. Her baby is gone. So there's nothing you can do to bring that baby back. So. 
So you don't have to find the right words, you know, in order to support this person. You're not going to have the right words. And uh, it's okay to not know. It's okay to say, I have no idea what to say to you right now. This must be awful. You know, because that mother wants you to listen. She wants you to be there. She wants you to not be offended if you text her and she doesn't text back because she's decided to not look at her phone because of the triggers that are there for her, you know? And so we have to be patient and we cannot expect, you know, X, Y, or Z from this person because her life just changed forever. She is now facing this postpartum with no baby and so she may feel like she needs to take some time and isolate herself from everybody and curl up in a ball under a blanket and not talk to anybody and if that's what she needs for a little while that's okay <laughs> you can still check in on her you know so so I you know I think just reaching out to people does not hurt reaching out and just saying just checking in letting you know I'm thinking of you Bringing, everybody's got to eat. Grieving people need to eat. So DoorDash gift card, <laughs> groceries, making a meal and leaving it in a cooler on their porch with some instructions for how to, you know, prepare it or reheat it. Uh, you know, just very like simple. Like just think about your basic needs. That mother needs those things too. Um, and, and sometimes it really is just holding space. And I know not everybody's a therapist. Not everybody is comfortable with that. Um, but I, I do feel like we have a lot of work to do in our culture around, you know, around pain and discomfort. We just, um, you know, it, it makes sense, right? We have to acknowledge it's our brain. Like, no, we don't want to think about death, but death is a part of life and terrible things happen. And so, you know, what do we want to, for our friend who, who is grieving, you know, to remember about this experience, that we were there for her, that we could just sit in silence with her if that's what she needed, that we could just reach out by text or we could leave a note on her door. Or if she has a living child, we could offer to take, take that child out for ice cream and let her just have some time to really be in her feelings if she needs that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And just, you know, just knowing that it's not personal that, you know, it, right. Because like some people have not suffered a major loss and certainly most people have not lost a child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that is its own special type of, um, you know, uniquely painful loss. Um, and it's okay to not understand. It's okay to not know much about grief. It's so you don't have to know you cannot you can't you can't get it on the level that you know, that your friend gets it. You are not her. So you're never going to understand and you don't need to in order to be supportive. You don't have to completely understand another person's, you know, situation to be there for them. You know, to to remember that date that the loss happened, you know, to put that on your calendar so that when that rolls around, when that first, when they've gotten through that first year, 
and that date rolls around again, they are feeling completely alone and like nobody remembers. And if you are, if you're the only person in her life to say, I'm just sending you this because I know today must be hard. What a gift, you know, of friendship, of compassion for that person. Because that's, you know, that's part of the grief. It's feeling like everybody else has moved on and, and, and left them behind. And they're completely the only person that remembers their baby. It's so um, life-changing. This idea of like, you don't have to fully understand to be a support. That feels super relevant to things that come up a lot of times in supervision. Um, most often it comes up for me with um, female identified clients who maybe consider the possibility of having children, but don't have any children yet. Um, but obviously it could come up with anybody who is not, does not have children, does not plan to have children, what have you. Is this question of how can I possibly work with someone dealing with whether it's PMADS or a pregnancy loss if I don't have any sort of reference point for parenting or motherhood? What suggestions do you have for folks who are in that space as counselors? Well, keep keep getting supervision. You don't have that shared experience. But even if you were also a parent, you still don't have, you know, the same exact experience. That is where empathy comes in. And even if you've never given birth, you can imagine, you know, what that's like. You can, you've probably met people who have had a baby um, or even maybe you've, you've, you've probably experienced a, some kind of loss and it could be a breakup. It could be a job loss. It could be a move. It could be not getting into, you know, the graduate program of your choice. You know, like those are losses. And so that is universal, right? And you can remember what that felt like for you. Um, and you grieved that. You may not know that, but you did. <laughs> and so any, so that that just feeling of like disappointment and having your expectations shattered, um, that feeling, you can definitely relate to that. You know, we were saying earlier that listening is such a big part of it. Um, so, you know, you can just, you can just listen and be there and, and just hold that space for that client. That means more than, than just about anything and, and be curious about it and ask, like, you know, we don't have to be afraid of asking about this tragedy. That's, that's what brought them to you. And so don't be afraid to ask, you know, about their experience and ask about like, what did you name your baby and what did you know and and what were your, your dreams for your baby and so let them tell you their story it's really impactful to have a space that's safe um, for this mother to talk about her hopes and dreams and um, and all of those losses yeah I mean, it brings to mind just this again another kind of both and um, of on the one hand, we need to ask a lot of questions. We need to be curious about the specifics of an individual's experience. And there is, at least I think, some sort of universality of emotion. You know, like you're naming grief is grief. Sure, the quantity or the way we process it or experience it is different from person to person. But 
you know, you don't have to get in the suffering Olympics with your clients in order to connect with them. Right, exactly, exactly. And, you know, and seek out, um, seek out training on this, you know, um, Postpartum Support International has trainings um, on this very topic. That's the way to get to get over that anxiety is to, you know, just expose yourself to more um, knowledge on the subject. There were two parts of this question that were kind of floating around in my head. At, at least one part, as you're talking about getting more training, um, is this sort of push around specialization that I think has kind of hit the mental health field and counseling in particular um, the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, I guess. Um, so would you say that there are things that someone would just really need additional training in, in order to be able to effectively work with folks with PMADS? Or do you think the standard training kind of gives you enough of an overview of at least non-pregnancy related conditions, um, to be able to work effectively? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think a lot of your basic, you know, um, person-centered counseling skills, um, can, can go a long way. If someone has been diagnosed with PMADS, um, then, you know, I would say seek out, um, some information on that. And no, you don't have to get the certification um, in perinatal mental health um, unless you just want to. And we would love to have you in this, in this area, in this specialty. Um, We certainly need more providers, but no, that's certainly not necessary. Uh, I do, I would say educate yourself though, you know, and, and look up some basic information. And certainly like if, you know, if they are, they've been diagnosed and they are probably, Um, I don't know if they've been diagnosed by their OB or their primary care physician or maybe a uh, reproductive um, psychiatrist. I would say definitely get a release and um, do some continuity of care type communication with the with the other providers in that person's life. Definitely the medication prescriber. And to just be, you know, just for everybody to be on the same page about where you're going with this client. Um, and if if you f- are feeling like uh, this is a little bit out of my scope, then, you know, seek some consultation on that. You have a child, a 10 year old. Um, I have a couple of kids. I feel like I and we've talked a little bit about how just kind of everything changes when you have a kid. How would you say that becoming a mom has changed you as a counselor? Oh, that's a good one. I think it's made me less afraid. <laughs> of talking about whatever comes up. I mean, don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I still feel vulnerable. I still, um, you know, feel anxiety around certain topics and, you know, certainly I'm still a human. Um, but I think I'm just maybe more direct and I just get to the heart of what's going on. And I'm not afraid of talking about how hard, um, motherhood is. And, how uncertain you feel about your life after having a baby, you know, best laid plans. Yeah. Those plans are shot. When you live that daily kind of experience where anything could happen, it just kind of toughens you up a little bit. I guess less trepidation around being real and being honest. It's also, well, this is, I don't know if you were planning to get 
like I don't know if this is kind of what you had in mind, but like my schedule <laughs> had to change, you know, like it's practically speaking like, uh, well, I no, I cannot <laughs> do an evening appointment. <laughs> I have a child to bathe and feed, you know, um, and so it kind of made me um, prioritize my time differently. Yeah, maybe I should have been doing that to begin with but like I don't know like something about like having that forced on you like there's a person relying on you um so it it made me I think it makes me a little bit more direct just in that way too like here are my hours the this is what I have to offer you those kind of boundaries um are are maybe not easier to set but just necessary yeah I totally connect with that same much more direct Oh, similarly, you know, when I'm done with the day, I'm 100% done with that part of the day. So like, you're not going to get an email from me. I'm not returning your voicemail. Um, And I've tried to let that be like instructional for the rest of my areas of my life, right? Like, so it's not just, oh, well, because I have a child. It's like, no, because I have boundaries. (laughs) Yes. Um, And that's been helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my own mental health. Prioritizing that, um, having time to do other things besides being a mom, having new hobbies to pursue, and uh, hiring a sitter or having grandma come and take care of the kids so I can have a date night. I mean, talk about changes. Changes in your relationship <laughs> have happened, and um, you know, and that relationship needs nurturing too. So, yeah, I think just uh, yeah, re. Uh, re-evaluating and reprioritizing um, all those uh, facets of your life. Well, I am so appreciative of your time today. And I, I'm just connecting with what a gift it must be to work with you as a mom, because I think if someone had told me that it's okay for it to be hard, like that would have been just a game changer. So I can only imagine how much your clients are benefiting from that realism with you. Oh, thanks, Candice. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That does it for our show today, folks. I'd love to hear from you with questions or experiences you've had, either with clients who experience PMADS or pregnancy loss or your personal stories. You can connect with me on Instagram or Facebook at Beyond Therapy Podcast. If you want to get some NBCC-approved continuing education credit for listening, just go to beyondtherapy.thinkific.com for more information. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry signing off. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening. I hear that cry.